War's over, man. Wormer dropped the big one. What? Over? Did you say over? Nothing is over until we decide it is. Was it over when the Germans bombed Pearl Harbor? Hell no! German? Forget it, he's rolling. Right, kids here we go just a reminder all 2021 seminars will be held in wichita falls texas this year so if you're holding out signing up to wait for another city to show up uh don't because they'll all be in texas next seminar up is going to be april 16th through the 18th and then june 11th through the 13th for camps coming up we have a coaching development camp in houston on march 6th that's going to be covering how to coach the power clean for lifting camps we've just added a squat camp to dallas at starting strength dallas on march 13th we also have a couple spots available for tampa on march 6th that's covering the squat and the deadlift we have a nutrition camp on the list that's going to be march 13th in houston at starting strength houston with bob santana and he'll tell you how to not be a complete fat turd and or not a skinny little insect. As usual, multiple competitions going on at Testify in Omaha. Check out our website for details, strength lifting, strongman, and USA weightlifting. Also, check out Starting Strength Gyms where you can work with a coach for less than 30 bucks a session. Continue to add new cities to the list. Find a location near you or to request information about a particular location. Head over to locations.startingstrengthgyms.com. And as usual, quit hoarding all the ammo. And if you'd like any more information about anything that I've talked about, head over to startingstrength.com and check out the right-hand side of the homepage. From the Asgard Company Studios in beautiful Wichita Falls, Texas, from the finest mind in the modern fitness industry, the one true voice in the strength and conditioning profession, the most important podcast on the Internet. Ladies and gentlemen, starting strength. Radio. Welcome back to Starting Strength Radio. It's Friday, and this particular Friday is not like any other Friday because, you know, that's just the math, right? Days are different, time being what it is. And we uh, have got a couple of special guests today to talk over some very, very interesting topics with those of you gentlemen in the audience that are concerned with uh, testosterone replacement therapy and several other old male health issues. We're joined today by Keith Nichols and Scott Howell, and uh, these guys operate the Tier 1 Health and Wellness Clinic in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And we're... uh, very uh, happy to have you guys with us. I appreciate your time today. We're going to get uh, into the weeds on all this stuff today. And uh, uh, those of you guys watching probably want to take some notes. So we're going to give you a minute to get a get a pen and some paper and take notes. And... Uh, uh, all right, that's enough time. All right, you've got pen and paper. Now you're taking notes. And uh, these guys are going to uh, share some interesting details about uh, what they do at Tier 1 Health and Wellness in, in Chattanooga with us. Uh, Scott, Keith, sure appreciate your being here. Thanks for having us. Good to be here. Why don't, why don't we start by... Uh, letting you guys introduce yourselves and let's talk about your background and, uh, uh, your, your, uh, 
oh, I, you know, I hate to say educational qualifications because that's, uh, that's so often uh, misleading. But, uh, you know, uh, we, we, everybody would like to know exactly what's going on here. So uh, tell us about yourselves. Good, Scott. Sure. Well, um, I'm an exercise physiologist, epidemiologist, and androgen researcher. I was a mechanical engineer first, but um, when I got out of the military, I used anabolic steroids for about a decade of my life. And uh, I used really high doses. And when I came off anabolic steroids, it was over 18 months before I even had any semblance of feeling normal again. Um, and I had to go on hormone replacement therapy after that. And that's what led me into becoming a scientist, a researcher, and then moving in uh, to medicine. So I have a unique uh, view of hormone uh, replacement therapy. But androgen metabolism, that's uh, uh, my specialty. Yeah, I think that uh, a whole lot of people are involved in this uh, industry, as we could probably term the testosterone replacement therapy business that have actually no personal experience with it themselves. And I think that's a problem. I think it's a problem. If you've never taken any of this stuff, you don't really know what it does and you don't have an appreciation for, uh, the complexities, uh, that are encountered by patients that you may be incorrectly prescribing things to. So, uh, this, this is, uh, personal experiences, that's what makes a coach, and in this particular situation, it's what makes a, a therapist as well. Keith? Hey, well, I got my medical degree from the Medical College of Georgia, and then I did a residency in physical medicine rehabilitation, which most people realize is the uh, specialty for the disabled. The whole job of a physiatrist is to maximize function. So it works well with regards to maximizing hormones. But I was in spine and sports medicine for well over 20 years, was a consultant with the Tennessee Titans, the UFC. I was a ringside physician for them. I was with the staff of the National Predators of the Hockey League for over 10 years. Had a great time doing all that. But during the course of my medical career, I started developing symptoms of testosterone deficiency. I was misdiagnosed, mismanaged, uh, understood what I went through and realized that so many men that I was seeing, men and women, were going through the same thing. So I decided at that time, well, hey, I'm going to do everything I can to learn everything I can about hormone replacement therapy. And that was well over a decade ago, and I did. And I started two practices at that time, my spine and sports practice, along with my health and wellness practice. And the health and wellness practice got so so busy and there was such a need that I ultimately, two years ago, re retired from spine and sports, and now I'm full-time hormone replacement therapy. Uh, this, is, this is interesting. You guys both have... Uh uh, a much better uh, personal experience base with uh, with this topic than the vast majority of anybody in this in this business. And I, you know, I've I've been around this shit for thirty five years myself, and uh, it is uh, it's so important that uh, uh, people understand exactly what is going on. For example, I have this conversation with people all the time. Uh, a guy shows up to, uh, uh, you know, his primary care physician, and he's feeling depressed. He's got symptoms of depression. Um, you know, he may or may not be full clinical, you know, 
trying to kill himself, depression, but he's not happy. He's, you know, he finds himself crying for no reason from time to time. Uh, you guys all know all about that. And uh, as a result, uh, he decides something must be wrong, so he goes to his primary care physician. Now, the primary care physician, just being basically a clerk, uh, sends him to a psychiatrist. I don't understand this very important thing. If a guy presents, man presents to a psychiatry appointment with symptoms of mild depression, why not, before you do any other thing, put this guy on TRT? Why would you not do that? Because wh- what is the downside? Right? Mark, but they that, don't that, think that, like that, that guy, do they? No, that guy was me, and I was a physician, and I went to my primary care physicians, and I was misdiagnosed. I was treated with SSRIs and had every side effect you could imagine with regard to oh, sexual God. dysfunction. Give I mean, you, that guy was me. That, that's why I do what I do, but I didn't know any better either, nor did those physicians. I had to figure it out on my own, and once I did, well, hey, you know, things were better. But no, I was that guy. So they are not trained in that. Uh, no. Hormone replacement therapy or testosterone replacement therapy is nowhere in our training in medical school or residency. Isn't that so amazing? It, it, it's is. as though they, they are taught that people are suffering from low levels of selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. <laughs> well, Mark, medicine is about, is about treating if you don't treat, right. then there's no money to be made whether you be treated whether you're treating with medications or surgery. That's that's what makes right. medicine function. Is so right. they're there to provide you medications, keep you coming back, and to right. do surgery on you. It's not about prevention, it's about treatment. It's definitely it's, it's like owning a restaurant. If yeah. nobody's hungry, you're gonna go out of business. Right. So we gotta keep the sick healthy coming in. I wouldn't call them healthy, but you understand what I'm saying. We sure. need to maintain the sick. Right. Well, uh it, it this is this is such a pressing issue uh, that I thought we'd we'd kick the discussion off with that because I have uh, been involved with getting people on testosterone replacement therapy for many years, you know, and people come into the gym and I, you know, I'm of course not a doctor. I just look, you, you need to go get your test level checked and you need to get some testosterone, so they go do it. And 72 hours later, they come in the gym. And a real good friend of mine last year, I did this to him. And uh, he came back in three days later and said, and I could tell when he walked in the door that he was better. I mean, this guy's talking about, you know, suicide and all this other insane shit and I, I he walked in the door and I said oh shit he's and he walked through the office door and he said you were right big smile on his face it it's just it's so astonishingly um it's a significant and abrupt improvement in all of the parameters that define depression for most men yes well it, the interesting thing about that is um 
that falls right in line with what we know about uh, androgen receptor signaling. We have non-genomic fast effects, and some of those happen rapidly in seconds and minutes. And then you have the effects of testosterone as a transcription factor to make proteins, to repair mm -hmm. tissue, like muscle tissue. Some of these effects are uh, really fast on the vasculature, neurotransmitters, and so uh, it's not without the realm uh, to, for anything like that to happen. It very well could. Don't you agree? Yeah, right, but we do encourage men to give things time. It's, it's not only getting enough of the hormone to exert a response, it's giving it time to work. And, and some issues can take you know, several months to improve, but, but they will improve if you just give it time. If it's related to, to testosterone deficiency, I always tell our patients that the number one reason people stop hormones like testosterone around the world is that they didn't, they didn't get the results they expected in the time frame they wanted. They want it quick and they want what they want and it doesn't right. always work that way. Well, but if it's, uh, <clears throat> if the therapy's under prescribed, if the dose is, is low-balled, you know, this, the idea that you titrate up in a situation like this, I can see how that might be frustrating to, to people who I have just told 72 hours and they go to a, they go to their, their doctor and, uh, the guy gives them 25 milligram of test propionate and they go back home expecting something to take place. And it doesn't. Well, you're jumping I, right into I, the meat I, right I, off the bat. <laughs> well, so much gonna, of this, I just don't understand how well, these guys. Well believe, it or, well, believe it or not, that's that same thing happens with testosterone clinics around the country themselves. I mean, the average yeah. number of clinics that a man has seen when they see me is typically three. They've already been to three clinics. And what's some of the, the common denominators that, that went wrong? You know, it is a simple formula that you're outlining there. It's, it's A plus B equals C. What is A? It's getting enough of the hormone to exert a response. Right. Most men never got enough of a dose to exert a response that you're describing. B is giving it time to work. And C is symptomatic improvement in the symptoms related to the deficiency. It's as simple as that. Most yep. men never get enough, though. They never get enough. Yeah, that's, that's what I've seen. Certainly what I've seen, this, this extremely conservative approach to this. Uh, and once again, to go back to my original point, if, if somebody presents at your clinic, and I'm not putting words in your mouth here, but if somebody presents at your clinic and you decide to put 400 milligram of test sip in this guy's butt and send him home, what's the worst possible thing that could happen? <laughs> Does he die? Morning. Does he contract cancer? Does he had does he contract COVID nineteen? I mean, that's the worst thing that could possibly happen right now, right? Is you get COVID nineteen. But surely four hundred milligram of testosterone cypionate wouldn't give a man COVID nineteen. So I yeah, what is the downside to a big loading dose of testosterone? I don't know what it would be. Especially for a male. Now you don't want to do it to your wife. Well, maybe you do, but, but uh, uh, you know, I, I, to start off conservative with a therapy like this, I just don't see the point in it. Well, th th there is a wide variation in response to therapy. And what I mean by that, it's going to get into some of the stuff that's never been talked about on a podcast before. Yeah. And so there's a wide variation in response. Some people need less. Some people need more, quite a bit more. 
but right. it's uh, we have to find what that is, and there's a genetic reason for it. So today we want to answer answer the question that kids ask so much is why do some men need more than others? We're going to answer that today. No, that's a real good, that's a real good point because a lot of people that have, have started down the road toward testosterone replacement therapy have gone to their primary care physician and, uh, and they say, okay, we'll do a hormone assay on you. And then they, they, they draw the blood and the test comes back and, uh, they say, uh, yeah, your, your testosterone, your free test is 325, and that's within the reference range. So there's nothing, you know, you're fine. <laughs> right, it's true. Three, three bullshit statements in a row, right? <laughs> right. Well, there's, well I, I'll there. have to ask you this question, though. The party line that you'll read about all the time and that you see is the Minimal effective dose to resolve yeah. symptoms, right? Yeah. Right. That's just perpetrated over every forum, right? T clinics. Minimal effective dose to resolve symptoms. But I'll ask you this, Mark. We can agree there's probably a minimal dose that will improve symptoms. Sure. But there's also a dose where you get the maximum benefits of testosterone, right? Oh, and symptomatic improvement without causing any harm. That's the optimal so the, dose. That is the optimal dose, but. These, these guys on these forums will ever think that 200, oh, anything 200 or above or 200 is the maximum you should ever need. Anything above that is abuse. We're going to explain today oh, why some men need more than that. And that is just what is perpetrated right. by the Internet. So, I mean, Very frustrating. So it is. So, I mean, so before we t- t- talk about why people need more than others, you know, uh, on your previous podcast, there's a lot of guys listening that are out there exercising, following your advice and just feeling terrible. They'll work out and they can't work out for days in a row because they, they hurt so bad or are so fatigued. And so the guys out there don't really know a lot of the symptoms of low testosterone. They're, they're very nonspecific, but reduced sexual desire and libido is one. The decrease in number of morning erections is, is, a, is, a, is a big one. Erectile dysfunction, fatigue, physical exhaustion, irritability, depression, as you've mentioned, poor concentration and memory, poor physical performance, weight gain, increase in body fat, Decrease in muscle strength, decrease in muscle mass, decrease energy, motivation, initiative, and self-confidence, joint pain, muscular aches. I had all those. Sleep disturbance, as well as daytime sleepiness. All of that occurs. But when you optimize levels like you're talking about, in other words, getting that dose that maximizes testosterone versus just symptomatic improvement, then you're going to maximize an increase in lean muscle mass, strength, endurance, healing capacity, exercise tolerance, bone mineral density, energy, motivation, initiative, self-confidence. It improves libido, sexual performance, improves your cholesterol, as you know, improves memory, cognition, decreases body fat, both visceral and subcutaneous, prevents and treats depression, prevents Alzheimer's disease, osteoporosis, decreases fatigue. How much of that do you want? You want a little bit of that or you want a lot of that? In other words, it makes you younger. It makes you healthier. It, It makes you healthier like you were when you were younger. It and does. It's all about. That's a very good point. How much of all of that stuff do you want? A little now, bit of it? <laughs> or do you but, want the most you can get? The well, before optimal. Dr. Howell digs, you do. Now, listen, I get accused, Dr. Rosier, Dr. Nichols, the levels they put me at, they don't know the long term danger they're causing. And what levels are we talking about? Well, hey, a free testosterone, 30, 40, 50, 60, is a great free testosterone. Those men are going to run between 1 and 2,000 typically on average. Okay, you got to remember, whenever I was misdiagnosed, 
the normal range went up to 1500 all right so if you walk into your doctor's yeah, office they've today lowered that a, for some bizarre reason to, to 916 so i mean <laughs> the point is is that whenever you put a man in an optimal range which we're talking about which you're talking about every parameter of health improves everything that we can measure yes everything now what is the harm in that long term what damage are we doing there mark well you know it's an excellent question isn't it why would uh, a clinician be concerned with the long-term damage when the short-term uh effects of uh hypogonadism may include suicide well, what the I hell are you guys something. worried about, you know, a guy carrying around a 1,200 testosterone level if he feels good and he's performing better and every aspect of his physical existence is improved and you're here worrying about what's going to happen to him 45 years in the future? Well, let me tell you what happens 45 years in the future. You die. We all do that. Well, the, you know, well, we're the, all the going the to die. We're going to die of something, right? right? Well, the, the well, exactly. But the dangers of a man with low testosterone, the danger is not doing it. Not doing right. it. Right. The danger is not Absolutely. doing it. And so the point I'm trying to make is that whenever you get men in an optimal range, an optimal level, everything improves. Every aspect of their health improves. There is no long-term harm. You're increasing their right. health span. No, I okay, so, uh, absolutely so this, this agree. Fear, this fear of something bad going wrong has, does not occur. They live no. longer, healthier lives. The end. Right. That's all there is to it. And uh, it's been my experience that the most profound changes, the most, the most easily noticed changes, the ones that come on the quickest, are not the physical, they're the psychological. The psychological benefits are, like I'd said, 72 hours. It's astonishing how fast the guy walks back in and says, it's, it, I'm better. I'm better. I'm like I used to be. I'm normal. I'm not sad. And it's <laughs> So you want him a little less sad, so you give him 25 milligrams? <laughs> well, that's... A that's like castration level dose. Um, yeah. But there's a lot of limitations to normal reference intervals. And clinicians that are trained in that box thinking, you're in the box, you're good. If you're outside the box, you're not. Yeah. There's a lot of limitations to that. Well, and those we people talk- are, that's what, a, that's what an RN does. Right? And not even a good RN, but that's what, that's what LVNs do. They, they're taught, they're trained. They're not educated, and they respond to these little intervals they've learned and memorized, and and that's not that's not clear thinking, but it uh, permeates this industry. Well, let's understand what the normal range is for testosterone. It's just a population average of men that were tested with a BMI less than thirty. You and I talked really briefly before, and you hit the nail on the head. What the problem with, with, with everyone in general, the consumers and the physicians, is that normal is not synonymous with healthy, asymptomatic, and free of disease. They, say, they think that it is, but it's not. The range of testosterone is not a healthy range. It's just the range of the population of men they tested, which are not healthy It is men. a statistical they're, they're s- average. 
And that's all of sick it is. Poison men, of sick poison men, of sick yes. poison men. The a, only way a statistical that you can get average. It's it just is. so weird that that uh, uh, that that it's so weird to me that people are not taught anymore about what they're seeing on uh, on blood tests. Every one of those reference ranges, if you've got a 14-parameter panel in front of you, every one of these ranges has been arrived at by the company that makes the machine. And they've gone out and surveyed a whole big, giant-ass population. And the, you know, if, you're, if you present in the office and you're uh, supposedly free of symptoms, and they measure this range, and they add you to the twenty thousand member database. You got an end of twenty thousand. Then the middle of that is where you're supposed to be. I I don't understand that thinking. Well, the problem with that normal range of testosterone is those men aren't 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 screened for severe symptoms of testosterone deficiency. I mean, there is no number that denotes a deficiency with regard to testosterone. There's a lot of inter-individual variability with what number a man develops symptoms. But nonetheless, it's just a population average. And what kills me is that the word superphysiologic has this negative connotation. Whenever anything above 916 now is superphysiologic. So if you're 918, you are superphysiologic, whatever that means. So <laughs> men should not want to be within the sick normal range. You want to be... Supraphysiological is what you'd Correct. like to be. I mean, right. if you'll think about it, that's a really good word. You're up next. Yeah. Supraphysiologic. Well, you know, there's nowhere in the Western uh, culture that you can sample a population of healthy individuals. You would have to sequester individuals on the island. You'd have to feed them good nutrition, make them physically active, make right. them get their rest, and then you might be able to see what healthy levels are. Right. But if you just take an average sample of the general public, what do you think you're getting? I, I you know, I, I really don't understand it. Well, I think a lot of people misinterpret uh, hormones uh, to equate to other measures. Like uh, potassium or calcium, you mm -hmm. know, but they're not. It's not that way. Not in any stretch. And the, the, the variation that uh, Keith talks about is uh, it's substantial. And so there's about a 40 to 50% variation in response from man to man uh, in response to testosterone therapy. And um, the reason why that occurs in this, I'm, I'm talking about when dose is equated. So when we equate dose, like a starting dose, there's a 40 to 50% variation in response. Mm -hmm. And the reason that that is there is because there's a single genetic mutation. It's a polymorphism on the androgen receptor gene. It's X-linked, it's on the X chromosome. Um, both men and women have it, we all have it, but the links of this mutation differ between person to person. So if someone has a short length of this mutation, it's called a CAG repeat, then they have a CAG repeat. Um, if they have a short length of it, then they'll respond to therapy very quickly at the lowest dose and become right. asymptomatic. As this length grows, there's a decreased sensitivity of the androgen receptor to find response elements of target genes to do, what, to do transcription and translation of proteins. Sure. 
And so at a certain point, around 40, it becomes pathologic. And it develops into things like uh, Klinefelter syndrome, Kennedy's disease, really severe uh, genetic uh, disorders. And it's ironic because a lot of uh, the, uh, the clinics that prescribe testosterone uh, aromatase inhibitors, they use one study by Pavlovich in 2001 to justify that use, but it was in Kleinfelter's patients. Severe <laughs> genetic comorbidity. They investigate a bunch of people with a profound pathology and then uh, uh, transpose that, that onto, extrapolate right. that onto the general public. Right. Yes, that's, that's, so, that's brilliant. So what, Dr. so what Dr. Howell just says, the reason that some men need more testosterone than others yes. is purely genetic based on the androgen receptor polymorphism. If right. you have a long CAG repeat, you're not sensitive to it. If you have a short CAG repeat, you're sensitive to it. In other words, every man differs. The reference range that you present is utterly meaningless if you're Def symptomatic. Well, if Correct. you take just the 40% variation on the low end, it expands the interval quite a bit. But in 2017, I think uh, Jay had mentioned this on the previous podcast, it dropped. It was almost 300 nanograms per deciliter off the top end. Okay, well, why did that occur? Why? <laughs> why? Was it age-related? Was it disease-related? Well, we do know that endocrine disruptors are in, implicated in a 1.6% decrease in testosterone levels per year on average. Travison, the one that harmonized the reference intervals in 2017, was the same person that sounded the alarm on endocrine disruptors in 2007. And since that time, even in 2007, Anderson in Europe, they went back 50 years and they established a 1.5% decrease in testosterone levels per year that could not be attributed to anything else in the analysis, not BMI, not age, not anything that they could adjust in the analysis. And it was concluded in the Travison study that there must be an environmental exposure in place. And since that time, 2007, it's been replicated in Brazil, it's been replicated in Canada, it's been replicated in Europe, it's been replicated at least 10 to 15 times, and the number is similar. And so we do know there was a congressional hearing in 2010 um, where some of our best scientists uh, testified in front of Congress in a closed hearing along with scientists from around the world studying the endocrine disruptors. And they were concerned about increased rates of type 2 diabetes, uh, hypothyroidism, autism rates. And w w there were some other things, Keith. What was it? So a point yeah. that we're trying to make is that men get accused of abusing testosterone when they legitimately have a need based on their genetics as well as their exposure to the well, toxins well, what in the environment. Well, what I think you're saying here with this observation that uh, the reference range has been lowered over the years is that apparently we've got environmental influences that are actually lowering testosterone levels. They're measuring the lower testosterone levels as a result of environmental influences. Correct. And mm -hmm. therefore lowering the reference range. Correct. With a Without complete question. and absolute misunderstanding of what it is that they're seeing. Correct. Now, you, I, and not that's, only does it lower your levels. You guys realize how astonishingly sure. stupid this is? You know, oh, yeah. you, you, you see the, the, the average... Uh, at the at the top go go down from 1200 to 900 and 
you watch that go down, and then you say, well, you know, then we need to adjust the reference range down without trying to explain why it went down and what might be wrong with it going down. That's, that's just well, you know, boggles the fucking mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is. We talk about it every day. We do. Here. But and it just confirms that that range is not a healthy range. They're sick, poisoned men. That's what we need to hit home. Is not only they're producing less, they can't use what they're what they're what they're producing because the chemicals also are interrupting with its metabolism. So it's even worse than than it seems. And here's what's amazing is that the Endocrine Society. If you go to their website, if anybody that's listening to this goes to the Endocrine Society website, they have a whole section on endocrine disrupting chemicals. And they will discuss the havoc that it's wreaking on our endocrine system with regard to especially men and women, but, but men with regard to testosterone and how it blocks testosterone's metabolism. Here's the problem. Even though they acknowledge that they're there and that this is occurring, it doesn't factor into any treatment guidelines. And to build on top of that, right. what he's saying, they even acknowledge that there's androgen insensitivity of genetic origin, but they don't offer any clinical guidance on how to deal with that. So if we have this trial data that we've known about since 2001, and it's that big a variation when well established, established in literature, then why aren't we actually acting on it in practice? And so what we see in practice with some people needing to be titrated up more than once, some people needing to be titrated down, it fits exactly into what the literature shows. And it's, it's unfortunate that some people can't get testosterone treatment when they need it. Oh, it's more than unfortunate. Is this, is that Scott, I disagree. I don't think it's merely unfortunate. I think it's uh, uh, I think it's unprofessional for a clinician to present themselves as prepared to do professional work when they're not. That's unprofessional. It's more than just unfortunate. Well, uh, I could. I, I, can I understand say this. you guys don't like to talk ugly about people, but. I kind of don't mind. Well, here's the thing. It took me, uh, it took us, so it took about 13, 14 years for me to find that mechanism. And I searched and searched. It was one of the things that I searched uh, my whole, almost my whole uh, uh, career as an androgen researcher to find why some people, for example, when guys go into a gym and some guys will take low-dose anabolic steroids and they will not hardly train hard, they won't dial in their nutrition, and they just respond through the right. roof. And then you have another guy that takes massive doses, does everything right, and he never gets anywhere. So why right. is there a differential response? I'll tell you what would blow your mind even more is when you look at that CAG repeat link, the longer the length, those guys have higher free testosterone levels. So those are the guys coming into a clinic with normal levels, five, six, seven hundred, that are still symptomatic because they're insensitive to it right. based on the number of their CAG repeats. So that, that's the amazing thing about it is the guys with the higher levels are the most sens- are insensitive to it. Right. Right. And, you know, if you, if you think about it for just a second, that, that seems logical. Yeah. You know. Well, I mean, it's, it's right. I mean, I, the guy's I, just I not do. feeling what he's got. So... <laughs> What well, is the answer? His sensitivity is reduced. That's right. He has so so sen- the doctor tells him, right. you know, well, you're, you know, but your levels are high enough, so you're not supposed to be feeling this way. So go home and continue to feel this way, but but be, but rest assured that your number is where it needs to be. 
That's correct. <laughs> well, they're going right. They're going exactly by the clinical guidelines. They're not reading the literature. And so we right. practice evidence-based medicine and try to use the best evidence that's there to guide practice. Mm-hmm. And this is something that is, we've been really passionate about, Correct. trying to find out why that variation is there. And mm-hmm. um, it's ironic, it's just been established this long. But when guys have Kennedy's disease, they fit it right into what uh, Dr. Nichols was talking about with the high LH, the high free testosterone level. But their CAG repeat is at 40 or beyond. And so it's huge, it's long. And so the insensitivity there, and everyone has a degree of sensitivity or insensitivity. Right. So, um, so have we answered why some men do more than others? <laughs> with I think so. Genetic polymorphism. I, yeah, I think that uh, I think that we've established that uh, any physician that tells that that pulls one uh, hormone test on you and does one assay and then announces to you that. Your uh, your testosterone is three seventy five, and that's within the reference range. And so, I can't give you any testosterone. You need to you need to first thing you need to do is not pay him. Get up and le- do not pay him because he doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about. So, I, this is terribly important. I, you don't reward incompetence with money. All right, really, honest to God, you don't. But uh, it's done all the time anyway. That, that's part of the problem with paying before you go in the office. You know, some, you know, I've I've been in in doctors' offices so many times when I when I about halfway through the conversation with this guy, I think to myself, I know more about this than he does, and I'm supposed to pay him, you know. But it's already been done. So, well, you guys had mentioned uh, uh, an interesting aspect of this. There are so many people involved in the TRT business that just reflexively uh, uh, prescribe along with testosterone. Uh, they reflexively prescribe estrogen blockers. This is. This is terribly interesting. I don't think a lot of people understand this. So let's talk about that for a while. Well, there's a lot of um, harm that's caused by the uh, prescribing of aromatase inhibitors. And this was actually one of the first phenotypes of injury I mapped out in athletes and bodybuilders that abuse anabolic steroids. Scott, let's explain what goes on with aromatization because I don't think that that's generally appreciated. Uh, you know, talk about the, the, the hormone cascade, so to speak. Well, um, uh, testosterone can be considered a pro-hormone. Right. And it has two main metabolites. And those two main metabolites are actually uh, created through two enzymes. And so one is the aromatase enzyme, and the other is 5-alpha reductase. Okay, with aromatase... Uh, it aromatizes testosterone into estradiol E2. And most of the main health benefits of testosterone are mediated through that aromatized estradiol. Because it, it I'll get to it in a second. In other words, estradiol take, is necessary for the beneficial effects of testosterone. And there is supposed to be 
a level of aromatization, a, a level of conversion from testosterone to estradiol. Well, the aromatase right. gene auto-regulates, yes, there is. And it's different for every person. The aromatase gene auto-regulates the amount of aromatase in the body at any one given time, given the internal physiology. And so if you input testosterone, your aromatase gene will auto-regulate the amount of aromatase expression unless someone's morbidly obese and obviously their body fat's gonna drop when they go on testosterone therapy because it, uh, but that's a different mechanism. But what I'm uh, trying to get to is that anytime that process is attenuated, dampened, it causes pathology on the uh, continuum. And the best way to examine it is to look at uh, those that have severe genetic disorders with aromatase deficiency or aromatase surplus. Now there's only really 20 or 30 documented cases of either one in the literature. And so most people, 99 point whatever of the population, don't fall into that category. And so, for example, with Kleinfelter syndrome, that disorder uh, causes a need to control estradiol. And that's the reason why they conducted that study. Uh, but if you consider athletes and bodybuilders, so and how Kleinfelter I found this, syndrome, let's talk, let's, what is specifically Kleinfelter syndrome? Kleinfelter's is a disorder where there's two X chromosomes and one Y chromosome. And usually uh, the actual number of CAG repeats on the androgen receptor gene on both of those chromosomes are different. And so one is, has a dominance over the other. And so what happens is um, Kleinfelter's patients usually, they almost certainly need to be on testosterone therapy. But sometimes their estradiol has to be uh, controlled as well. But it's that's um, they have gynecomastia uh, most often, but their body fat distribution is similar to a pear shape or what would be with a woman. And so they have libido uh, uh, issues and things like that. But their CAG repeat is long as well. And so they have a decreased sensitivity to androgens. And the paper he refers to is, was done with Kleinfelter's patients and, and others with genetic disorders where that 10 to 1 testosterone to estradiol ratio came about. It was not based on normal men or men on testosterone. So you read on these forums or clinics where everybody's aiming for that 10 to 1. That was based on a paper done by Pavlovich, 2001, right here. Uh, right. What should the ratio be? It shouldn't be controlled. The aromatase uh, gene auto-regulates that. Right. And the issue, if you look at evolutionary biology, it is thought that the aromatase gene concurrently evolved with the androgen receptor gene uh, to protect the organ systems of mammals. So that's the estradiol protecting those organ systems. Mm -hmm. And that's just a common sense thing looking at a perspective of macro view. But So what are the effects of estradiol? How does it work? Well, estradiol, for one, uh, let's, for example, when men go on testosterone therapy, sometimes they'll gain water weight, right? And that's because testosterone stimulates antidiuretic hormone. So that increases it. When there's enough aromatized estradiol, it attenuates it and drops it back down. Mm -hmm. And so if that process is not left alone, that water weight will resolve in eight to 12 weeks. And so people automatically think, and it's younger guys, mostly on forums and things, mm -hmm. they think that if you um, 
take testosterone or you increase the dose of testosterone, the estradiol is going to keep on going up exponentially. Right. And, <clears throat> and they perceive that the estradiol is competing with the testosterone for the anabolic effects. That's, it, I, that's what I guess they perceive, right? Yeah, and, and well, you need to talk about the feedlot uh, with estradiol, but you know, there's this paper here that, and here's the problem, uh, Mark, is that men think that as they increase their androgen dose, that the estradiol is going to climb along with it exponentially. That doesn't happen. Uh, during testosterone administration, both estradiol and DHT exhibit saturable increases with the dose, meaning that it, they reach a Vmax, a point of maximum metabolism. All right. So we only have so much aromatase enzyme. Once you get enough androgens in you and that aromatase enzyme is fully saturated, it can't produce any more estradiol. Right. That's why as you increase androgen dosages, the estrogen to androgen ratio goes down in both young and older men. So as your test, let's say your testosterone grows is at 1,000, your estradiol is, is, is 35. It goes to 1,500, your, your, estri- your testosterone. Your estradiol may climb to 62. Mm-hmm. That estrogen to testosterone ratio has diminished. It doesn't keep climbing. Once right. you reach, let's say you reach a level of 2,000 of testosterone, your estrogen may be done depending on your level of aromatase enzyme. So it reaches a saturation point where it won't rise anymore. It can't because right. you can only aromatize so much due to the maximum rate of metabolism. Right. And it's the same for 5-alpha reductase. And a lot of guys are concerned about DHT. Right. And so it's the same. It's every, uh, every enzyme or every uh, product uh, produced by enzyme is rate limited by the amount of that enzyme in the body. And so that's why it's one of the uh, things that I found was a lot of people uh, that uh, would complain of androgen mm-hmm. insensitivity. They would say their receptors were down regulating when they had been on uh, uh, testosterone for weeks or whatever. That doesn't occur. Androgen receptors upregulate in a dose response. And I was never able to find an upper ceiling to that in the literature I know it's there. I just haven't found it. I know it's there because so it's the, saturable. So the, the the bottleneck are those two enzymes, not the hormones. Mm-hmm. And I find it amazing right. that when you're treating men, when you see men come in that have been to multiple other clinics and they never reach an optimal level, they t- tend to be the ones that have all the problems. It's amazing when a man gets an optimal level of testosterone. Let's just pick a number, 1,500 with a free of 40 to 50. He doesn't have estrogen symptoms. That's one of the questions I ask men when they're fully optimal. I ask, how do you feel? Great. Are your levels as good as they've ever been? Yes, sir. What kind of estrogen symptoms are you having? And they laugh. They, they laugh. They say, I don't have any. I said, but you did before, right? I mean, you did when your other clinics. Yes, I did. But you don't now, but your levels are better. Yeah. So, you know, it's you Because they're finally getting fear. enough androgen. Correct. And they, they, they learn not to fear estrogen anymore. And they don't have symptoms. Well, yeah. estrogen right. symptoms are is really a myth. Even our trial data supports that. There was a, a, a trial by uh, Taylor in 2016. And what they did was they compared men that were on testosterone therapy only and men on testosterone plus an aromatase inhibitor. And those that were on the aromatase inhibitor had higher vasomotor symptoms, also known as estrogen symptoms. They were higher. And so even our, our best data supports that, and it's a carryover from bodybuilding. It really uh, is. Well, Mark, it really comes down to this one thing. In every single study done with testosterone showing benefits in men since it was discovered, it was discovered in the mid-1930s, in every single study showing benefits in men, and not one of those studies that they block or control estradiol, 
What do people not get? It's not in any clinical guideline. Uh, who, who came up with, and it, we're talking about Clomid here, right? No, no, no we're talking no. about, go ahead. We're talking about like anastrozole. We're talking anastrozole, about. Anastrozole, uh, I'm sorry. Or, or, or letrozole, anastrozole, letrozole, yes. What, what is Clomid? Anastrozole. Where about it's it? a selective estrogen receptor modulator. It blocks the estrogen receptor in the central region. Clomid does. Prevents the negative feedback loop mm-hmm. of test. Yeah, prevents the negative feedback loop of testosterone. It kind of tricks the body in producing more testosterone and in layman's terms. And CIRMs increase thrombotic risk. Uh, right. So, um, just a tidbit. <laughs> so, so when when we're talking about uh, aromatase inhibitors, we're 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 talking about a Remedex. Is that is that most commonly? Yes. Well, yes. that's the most used one. That's the, the most, most used, used one. one. Yes. All right. Yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, from what I understand, uh, that drug was actually developed to block uh, the effects of estrogen in estrogen sensitive tumors in women. Correct. Is yes. that right? Mm-hmm. That is correct. And if so, you look at the effects of those women after they're put on aromatase inhibitors, at five years, their bone mineral density increases uh, 15 to 20% in five years. At 10 years, they're getting advanced cardiovascular disease. So if the cancer doesn't kill them, the aromatase inhibitor will because they're going to be frail and they're going to die earlier age. Well, so <clears throat> what genius decided that the protocol needs to be testosterone and Arimidex? Where did that come from? Well, there's one study that tends to, to kind of uh, talk about it. And this is where some of it came from, most of it come from. You've probably heard of the estrogen sweet spot, right? That sweet spot. So it came from this. There was a study done in JAMA that looked at 501 men with congestive heart failure. And they looked at their estrogen levels, and they put them in five quintiles. Right. The third quintile, the middle, the middle estrogen level, you know, had a range of, let's see what it was. It was uh, the third quintile was, that, test, that estrogen level was 21 to 30. So that became that sweet spot. And what they saw in that study is that men with low estrogen levels and high estrogen levels had increased mortality. But here's the funny thing, is that the men with low estrogen levels had kidney failure. Right. The men with high estrogen levels had liver failure. Right. So we've got congestive heart failure on top of kidney failure. Two different mechanisms So you've got a population of sick men that, of course, are dying. So they extrapolated that data and said, and, and, and uh, exp, you know, put that to men, normal men, on testosterone. This study had nothing to do with normal men, nothing to do with testosterone at all. But they took that data and said, you need to be in that sweet spot. But yet it's the uh, congestive heart failure and kidney disease that caused the low estrogen. And it was the kidney failure. I mean, it was the congestive heart failure and the, and the liver disease that killed them as well. well it, let me, but yet they get Keith, let me, Mr. Dial. Let me ask you a real important question, just kind of as an aside here. How do you explain the tendency to do studies like that where nobody's thinking clearly it's just I, how do you what in the hell is 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 why would you uh take uh 500 guys who are sick and 
and do anything with that data and try to extrapolate it to a healthy population. Because that's all you've got in front of you that day? Is that what the deal is? Is, it, is this, yeah. a, uh, is this a, uh, uh, another example of, well, we have that machine, so that's the test we're going to run. Right? right? Well, you know, often uh, results like that are misattributed by the person that interprets them. Yes. And so a fundamental principle in science is whatever population you study with the characteristics of the sample, you can only extrapolate to that population. But even with the Pavlovich it's done, study, with the, it's done the other way all the time, isn't it? It's incessant, and that's because people shouldn't be uh, interpret or shouldn't be trying to interpret research unless they know the methods. And so, but these I are the researchers. <laughs> well, conduct well. Even the researchers Pavlovich, are making these mistakes. Well, in this one uh, with Pavlovich. They were only concerned about Kleinfelter's patients in highly genetic disease. But still, it was extrapolated for that androgen to estradiol ratio to be 10. The bane of our existence truly is men taking observational studies and extrapolating that to men on testosterone. You just can't do that. You just can't do that. Look look at the black box warning on testosterone. It was established by two flawed studies. And the vegan study in 2013, right. when the actual data was received because so many researchers signed petitions, petitioning the journal to retract, when they actually got the data, there was women that were included in the study. It was a retrospective review. And so it was so faulty, but JAMA still has that up. But they have some notes there, but it's still up there. Right, they, they, for the black box warning for increased risk of heart attack strokes, uh, by the FDA was based on reviewing five observational studies, two of which showed negative results, the vegan and the Finkel studies, three that didn't, and then two uh, systematic reviews. That's it. And they, they put the black box warning on there, which still remains, based on two extremely flawed studies that have subsequently been debunked by the <laughs> medical community. Oh, yep. shit. Uh, okay. Uh, let's... Uh, Let's get to this other thing. That there, there are a couple of things that we need to talk about today. Now, one of the, one of the most uh, widely recognized problems with uh, testosterone replacement therapy is, uh, is uh, H&H elevation. So let's, let's discuss that because uh, this is, this is uh, on a lot of people's mind, and I think we need to dissect that. Well, we, Dr. Howell's going to go into the dig in the details on that, but before he even does, I'm just going to tell you this. Once again, we talked about testosterone and beneficial effects of man and was estradiol. Testosterone discovered in the mid-1930s, been used since that time. It's been used and abused since that time. We can both agree on that. There's not a single randomized control trial to date that show that it increases a man's risk of heart attack, strokes, or blood clots. Right. We'll start with Despite that. Despite the fact that H&H is increased. And most of those men who aren't even followed by a physician, once again, used and abused. Right. That's right. And still, men aren't dropping dead with heart attacks, strokes, or blood clots. Our ERs aren't full of those men, right? <laughs> you know, a lot of the, ba- the things that you hear in the media, they don't account for the use of tamoxifen, aromatase inhibitors with testosterone therapy, which do increase thrombotic risk. And so that's a confounding factor when someone is on That would seem therapy, important. But for hematocrit increases... When any time 
Oh, yeah. As soon as they see androgen, it gets blamed on androgen. They won't look at the co-founders like the aromatase inhibitors. They won't do that. But, I mean, it's it's substantial. If you look at the literature on it, there is thrombotic risk. Tamoxifen is pretty high, so bodybuilders, they use it. I mean, and they're taking high-dose androgen. It's problematic. Anyone that takes it. But anytime someone goes on testosterone therapy, um, they get an increase in red cell mass. Right. And um, there's, it, uh, it's consistent across the board. Uh, it varies in how much it changes, but it's a truly beneficial effect, and I'll tell you why. I don't believe that hematocrit increases are an independent risk factor. Now, uh, before well, we get let's, into that. Let's, let's define our terms here for the lay people listening to us. Uh, hematocrit is uh, the... Uh, mass of red blood cells in the in the in the bloodstream and it it uh is expressed as a i guess as a percentage of the volume right Mm -hmm. so a hematocrit of 57 is that 57 percent of the of the blood sample is red blood cells yes right and it hematocrit is an indirect measure and that's something we'll talk about it's a surrogate right and, and hemoglobin is the amount of that particular iron-based protein within the red cells, right? Okay. And so anytime uh, someone goes on testosterone therapy, there's basically two mechanisms that cause this to happen. Um, the one is what I call an indirect mechanism. Um, and it's the uh, androgen EPO me- mechanism. And you've heard of EPO before. Yes. Erythropoietin. Right. It's what cyclists use to dope with. Right. Okay, this is a release from the kidneys. And in animal models, uh, androgens do stimulate that uh, release from the kidneys. And what EPO does is it actually commits erythroid cells that aren't committed, or they're like stem cells in the bone marrow. Right to take on an erythroid lineage, so it commits them to that. But in the human trials that's been done, the EPO differences on testosterone therapy have varied. In some trials, there's hardly none that's stimulated. And so there's a direct mechanism uh, at play here. And the direct mechanism is direct stimulation of androgens on those hematopoietic stem cells. And what it does is it stimulates those uh, red marrow cells uh, to express EPO receptors early. And so then at any level of EPO, they will be committed and start to mature right. and then expand. So that's the two. What is now, the highest H&H you've seen uh, in a guy on EPO? Just out of curiosity. I, I've, I've seen guys, now we're talking about something completely different right, than right. hormone replacement therapy. Right. No, uh, I, I mean, seen, cyclists on EPO, what do those guys do? 65 they, and they, 21, we'll something that, like that? Well, see, they have a maximal oxygen offloading at that high. And what you'll see here in a second is the experimental studies, what they show. See, on well, let me explain it right now. On static, a lot of people believe, and you'll see this on forums everywhere, that as your hematocrit increases, your 
blood viscosity increases exponentially. Right. Okay. There is no consensus in hematology among hematologists about whether hematocrit is an independent risk factor, and I'll tell you why. That exponential increase comes from static experiments in vitro where they use plate viscometers, class right. tube viscometers that don't mimic the vasculature. They don't expand, right. vasodilate, and they don't contract like the vasculature. Well, and in you, those experiments, yes, you do have an, well, it is. In, in those experiments, you do have an exponential increase, but they're missing right. the whole point. It doesn't replicate the it, vasculature. No, it now, doesn't. It's the, not a dynamic system. It's in vitro. Yes. It's a glass tube. Perfect. That's it. In, in, in vivo, in animal and human studies, a hemoconcentration, what is established is a 25 to 33% above baseline, you can increase your hematocrit before there's an inflection point. Now, before that inflection point, and I'm gonna read this def right completely off a study, the increase in blood volume accompanied uh, by this increase in red cell mass enlarges the vascular bed, decreases peripheral resistance, and increases cardiac output. It makes hemodynamics more efficient. Well, that's it. So, how many, how many people do you think that go on testosterone therapy are going to move to that 33%? They're not. I've never seen it. Have I've you? not either, but let's say they did. They have a hematocrit of 45. 33% increase is going to be up to 60. I've never seen anybody go from 45 to 60. Mine is, I have caught mine at 57. Uh, mine's been 57 as well. Several times. And, uh, oh, I don't but know. That's I've, what increased. I've, I've uh, donated blood, quote unquote, at uh, 57 and uh, uh, what, 18.2, something like that. Before, and I, I do feel better after I get that off. What, well, what, what do you think is going the, the on? The distinction we're trying to make now is that, you know, that's what increases your endurance and what increases your healing capacity. That's how we can heal diabetic ulcers with testosterone is that increased tissue oxygenation. Right. But I think the point that we want to get across is, yeah, a lot of guys will say they feel better with a phlebotomy. That's, that's perfectly fine. I mean, right. you do lose some of those benefits. But I will tell you, there's a difference between wanting to and needing to. Right. Yes. What we're saying right. from a medical standpoint is you don't have to because there's no danger at 57 right. where you're at. So that's the, but it, that's okay the basic you want to go question that. that I'm asking. Right. Would, so you guys are not going to advise me to worry about 57 and 18.9. What I would tell you is that you can donate if you want. You're just going to lose some of the benefits of that right. secondary erythrocytosis. But there's no danger in running that high. No. I, Once they, again, well, have you noted any heart attack, strokes, or blood clots in any randomized control trials since the 1930s? No. Yeah. And there's plenty of men there out there running have. 57 or more. There you well, have the, the, uh, the other side on that token is we're talking about some, uh, in, in someone that has their lifestyle factors are in check. They're not taking all these other things like bodybuilders do. Yeah. Not all this polypharmacy in the mix. Because that's really where the case reports pile up is when there's polypharmacy with all this stuff. But, I <laughs> mean, guys here's, a, here's will, a study. I mean, I, I don't know if you people watching our podcast today understand that, understand this very important fact. <laughs> Bodybuilders are crazy. They're all fucking 
lost their minds. They're not normal people, and they will do anything. Right, guys? God, mm-hmm. they will. Scott knows that. I know. Definitely. I know Scott knows that. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Well, I t- I, well, you ask about 400 milligrams, uh, knocking anybody over. Well, I've been way higher than that. Oh, I know. And, I know guys that take a gram a week. Mm-hmm. <laughs> gram a test a week. A, I guess perfectly. What's well, a round number? It's a nice round number. Yeah. It's, yeah. Well, to, to your point about hematocrit, I wanted to touch on this because it's an interesting study. This was a study where it was in mice that had a genetic mutation that increased their hematocrit levels. And these mice had a hematocrit of 85%. 85%? These 85%. And they followed them until all of them died. None of them developed thrombotic events. None of them <laughs> Even died at 85% from hematocrit. Now, I'm not saying that that is something that someone should uh, uh, think is safe in a human because there's so many other factors, right. individual risk factor, genetic well, risk. Well, it's, it's always uh, chancy to uh, extrapolate rodent data to, to human, but it, it does indicate that uh, they're not uh, throwing uh, thrombotic uh, clusters out even at 85% of blood volume being solid. That's, uh, yeah, that's kind of important. Have you you ever thought about how venesection or phlebotomy came into the clinical picture? Well, I, you know, I I have wondered about uh, phlebotomy for, for quite some time because 250 years ago, that was the the primary intervention. Well, you, you you've got too much blood, you know. We've we've got to get some of that blood off, and uh, I, why? I mean, it's hard to understand what doctors were. Th- it's hard enough to understand what doctors are thinking now, but it's it's terribly difficult to 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 try to explain what they were thinking in the late seventeen hundreds. Uh, when all of this, when all this came about, it was a, it was a primary intervention, you know, I have, you know, surgeons quote unquote at barbers were kind of the same guys <laughs> back then and they all did phlebotomy and, uh, I don't know why I have no idea where they came up with the idea that you've just got too damn much blood. And, uh, well, I can, I can tell you recent phlebotomy, uh, I had to trace it back and it took a, a couple months to, uh, for me to trace it back in the literature, but it came from a study that was it, at my birth year in 1978. And it was a retrospective review of polycythemia vera patients. These patients have bone marrow cancer. And so what they suggested after they did this retrospective review was that in this population of individuals, it might be beneficial to venesect them, to phlebotomize them. Since that point, it's stuck in the literature. And so now when someone goes in on testosterone therapy, their hematocrit is high. The first thing that keys in the clinician's mind is phlebotomy. If their hematocrit's higher than uh, 51, right? Because they think they have polycythemia polycythemia there, are gonna develop the same 
thrombotic right. risk that a person with polycythemia vera does, and they don't. It's One is pathology, and the other is not. But Correct. they look well, at a they, number. There's a, <laughs> yes, yes. Well, see, they look the at a number. Though, there's a huge difference in polycythemia vera and what it does in secondary erythrocytosis. In polycythemia vera, you got increased red cell count, increased white cell count, increased platelets. Those thrombocytes, those platelets, are the issue. So now, all of the solids the, are up, not just the, not just the. Right, but platelets crit. clot, not red blood cells, right? right. Well, uh, see, there's a difference between secondary erythrocytosis with testosterone therapy, what that does, and what happens in polycythemia vera, which is a bone marrow cancer. And so with secondary erythrocytosis, there is only an increase in red cell count. There is no increase in platelets. With polycythemia vera, the bone cancer, there's an increase in red cells, white cells, and also platelets. And those thrombocytes or platelets are the, are the issue. Right. But if you compare right. phlebotomy. Platelets clot, red blood cells don't. Correct. You have to have an activation cascade to occur from right. vascular injury. Well, uh, I think that probably puts that topic to bed. So uh, let's get to the big one, shall we, boys and girls? Let's get to the big one. Your poor little primary care physician has told you that he's not going to put you on testosterone because testosterone causes prostate cancer. Now, he's told you that. You know he's told you that. I know he's told you that. He thinks he's right. Well, he doesn't think. He just talks. And this is a big, giant problem that uh, uh, you've got medical professionals practicing outside their field of expertise. That's never slowed a doctor down, right? Squats are bad for the knees, right? And testosterone is going to give you prostate cancer. Uh, this is... This this has held so many guys back from correcting an obvious problem they've got because they're afraid they're going to get prostate cancer. Now, the most superficial uh, refutation of this is who gets prostate cancer? Old men. Older men because prostate cancer is a disease of aging. That's right. And who has low testosterone? Older men. Older men. A does not equal B. And, uh, you know, I don't know how, you know, I mean, you know, 75-year-old guy, uh, a 75-year-old guy, a healthy 75-year-old guy is going to have some prostate cancer cells. That's just a function of being 75. Now, whether it'll kill him or not is entirely different matter. But the question would be for your primary care physician, does the fact that the man at 75 have some prostate cancer cells, is that the result of his previously having had normal levels of testosterone? What does the literature show on this terribly important topic? 
Well, it shows us that men with low testosterone levels are at highest risk of developing prostate cancer. It, it certainly does, doesn't it? All right, it does. Yes. And it it's also shows us, the literature now shows that it's safe to treat men who have been treated for prostate cancer. I have many of those patients. And it's also safe to treat men that are under active surveillance for low-grade cancers. Those men, when compared to men not on testosterone, there's no worsening of the disease, no increase in the PSA over men not treated with testosterone. Well, it doesn't cause prostate cancer to grow like, like throwing gasoline on a fire like it used to be thought. That's what they told everyone. That's what they told everyone. And there are guys my age and older walking around right now with this nonsense stuck in their heads. Well, there's, if you could look at the saturation model put forth by Dr. Morgenthaler, if you have a level of around 250 or more of testosterone, taking testosterone will not cause prostate cancer to grow. It's already fully saturated by the androgen receptor. I mean, the androgen receptor is fully saturated by the androgen. It's men with castrate levels of testosterone, very low levels of testosterone, where prostate cancer will grow up to a level of 250. You know, castrate levels uh, of testosterone, the tumor is very sensitive to the androgen. It will grow up to a level of 250, and then after that, it's fully saturated. It has no further effect on growth. But it doesn't cause prostate cancer. I think what men need to understand, it doesn't cause it. If anything, it helps prevent prostate cancer. That's also kind of important, isn't it? Um, I, that is probably been the biggest factor in people who actually need uh, testosterone replacement having not gotten it over the years. So let's talk about how we're measuring prostate cancer. Let's talk about PSA and what that protein actually is, what it actually does, and what influences the level of prostate-specific antigen. You ready? Go ahead. All right. What is PSA? Prostate-specific antigen is a glycoprotein enzyme secreted by the epithelial cells of the prostate whose job is to liquefy semen so that sperm can f swim freely. It, 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 it improves solves. sperm motility, doesn't it? Motility. It also dissolves the cervical mucus plug so that the sperm can enter the uterus. Yes. That's what it does. It's secreted in the ejaculate. A very, very small amount is excreted into the blood, which is what we measure when we measure right. a PSA test. All right. It was discovered in 1970 uh, by Dr. Richard Ablin. It was FDA approved in 1986 just to monitor the progression of disease in men with prostate cancer. It was never intended to be a screening tool at that time because it's not a good screening tool. It was only in 1994 the FDA approved its use along with the digital rectal exam to test uh, asymptomatic men for prostate cancer, and that's where all the problems arose. Keith, this is, Keith, this is so interesting to me because of the fact that this glycoprotein is secreted by the epithelial cells in the in the encapsulated prostate, right? It is secreted into the ejaculate, and its primary function is on the sperm motility and at the end point for the sperm at the at the at the cervical plug. Right? Right. Right. Yet, we measure this 
as a blood value. And the only way it gets into the blood is through some extremely low-level diffusion mechanism. Correct. Uh, that uh, it has to enter, since it's secreted in the prostate, it has to, it has to enter in, uh, into the blood uh, at that margin, the, the, the vascular margin between the epithelium of the, of the prostate and the bloodstream, right? Now, right. now this is, th th that's so it's kind of accidental that it's in yeah. the blood anyway. Now, let me ask you a question here. What is the vascular situation in a, in a, in a, in a prostate with BPH? Benign prostatic hypertrophy. What is the what's the vascular situation in a situation like this? Is the is the is the hypertrophy vascular in nature? Is it is the hypertrophy connective tissue in nature? And what difference would that make on the ability of the blood to elevate PSA in that particular pathology? You understand my well, question? Look, I do. I, I think the main thing, yes, and I think I'll answer it this way, is the PSA cannot diagnose prostate cancer. All right? It's not cancer-specific. It's not called prostate cancer-specific antigen. Okay? It is, it is measured in the normal, the benign, BPH, and the cancerous prostate, and it can be elevated by a multitude of reasons. Like ejaculation, right? right? Here we go. Urinary tract infection, prostatitis, ejaculated within 24 to 40 hours of the test. <laughs> Anything that puts pressure on the perineum, horseback riding, four-wheeler riding, right. motorcycle riding, riding a bike, you know, a truck driver. One of my, one of my high priorities is in, in life has always been to have ejaculated within the past 48 hours. <laughs> so I don't know about you guys, but I've, I've been real bad about that. And, uh, you know, I... <laughs> I haven't paid any attention to my PSA in quite some time, uh, as a result primarily of that. But uh, what, what in the hell? Do, do you realize I have had conversations with at least two and maybe three different urologists? And when I asked them this question, uh, I said, what is PSA? And they patiently explained, well, that is a marker for prostate cancer. And I said, you don't understand. I don't think you understand my question. I'm asking you what chemically, physiologically, prostate-specific antigen is because I find it very difficult to believe that the cancer cells have done us the courtesy of identifying themselves with a protein. I, I find that difficult to believe. So what is PSA? And they patiently explain, well, it's a marker for prostate cancer. You know, it just, so it just, just, just repeat, you know, the same shit over and over again while uh, a, a very good friend of mine, mentor of mine, uh, was the victim of this kind of fucking shit many years ago. 
and they basically killed him. And uh, I mean, he had, you know, slightly elevated PSA, and these criminal bastards wanted to do a biopsy, you know, a twelve needle biopsy of a perfectly encapsulated prostate gland. And you cannot tell me that poking twelve holes in a prostate gland does not free the contents of the prostate gland. You can't tell me that. Because mechanically, you just perforated the goddamn thing. Now, you know, I, you know, maybe you guys have got some information on this that I don't have, but does that not seem like an excellent way to metastasize a cancerous prostate? Well, uh, I will I, tell you, I, we I, can I'd be glad to get in that with you for the men out there. Is yes, there there have been studies to show that that can indeed occur. Well, all right, isn't that interesting? So you know, the, the, we we already established that PSO can't diagnose prostate cancer. It's elevated in the normal prostate, the benign prostate, and the cancerous prostate. There's also no specific level that detects prostate cancer. A man can have prostate cancer of the level of 0.5, and he cannot have prostate cancer of the level of 11. So we have this arbitrary cutoff of four. It's an arbitrary number. Some want to advocate for a lower cutoff. Others want higher. The lower number will allow more men to undergo biopsies, yes. like your friend. Won't it? And that's what it's all about. And we're going to get to that. It's money makes the world go round. Yeah, I know. It's been written that if it wasn't for prostate biopsies and radical prostatectomies, half of all urology practices would go out of business in the United States. Good. That's been real. Okay. All right. Now, the PSA also can't detect or distinguish between indolent and aggressive cancers. And something else you've already alluded to is prostate cancer is age-related. The older you are, the more likely you are to have it. You'll die with it, most likely not from it. Mm -hmm. the, the lifetime risk of dying from prostate cancer is 3%, all right? But here's the thing about prostate-specific antigen as a screening tool. It hasn't been shown to decrease mortality. If you were to test 1,000 men this with PSA the between the basic, ages of 55. You guys listen carefully now. Listen very carefully okay, to what Keith is telling you. It hasn't been shown to decrease mortality. If you measure 1,000 men with PSA, age 55 to 69, four of them are going to die. If you don't measure PSA in 1,000 men, five are going to die. So measuring PSA will allow one man to live out of 1,000. That's not a big decrease in mortality. No. All right? No, it's, now, I, PSA, I suppose that's probably statistically significant. But is it clinically significant? You guys understand the difference in that, right? Well, well here's what it really comes down to is it's not that. It, it, well, it is that because it really hasn't shown to significantly reduce mortality. Right. All right? But here's the real problem is what your friend went to. It's that the PSA test results in false positives and false negatives. A false negative is when, you know, you're told you have a negative test, there's no cancer there when it really is. False positive is that... Your PSA goes up, but you don't have cancer. But what happens? What happened like what happened to your friend? They undergo a biopsy. Right. Okay? Now, biopsy generates money for the doctor and the hospital. That's yeah. right. But it also can create a lot of physical and psychological harm. Anxiety, stress. It is painful to have one. It can lead to an infection, painful urination, urinary retention, blood in your stool, blood in your sperm, I mean, uh, blood in your urine. And that, that, what that biopsy will also do, it can potentially seed that cancer, as your friend, unfortunately, had. 
okay? There was a study done in 2019 by Jose in clinical chemistry that they looked at tumor-associated release of prostate cancer cells after a transrectal ultrasound guided biopsy. There were circulating tumor cells significantly increased and that correlated with a worse progression-free survival rate for those men. Man. So it can happen. All right, but what does the biopsy also lead to? It leads to an overdiagnosis and overtreatment. What is overdiagnosis? It's the detection of a prostate cancer that would have remained undetected during the lifetime of that man and caused him no problem. Right. But they still get a diagnosis of cancer. Because they found a, a couple of, of cells. Right. And so they get the C word, though. They hear the C word. They hear the word cancer. It develops a lot of anxiety and depression. Some studies have shown that it's caused cardiovascular events in men as well as suicide. They get the diagnosis of cancer. Some can't, some can't handle that. But then they end up with overtreatment. Mm -hmm. Even if a man has found to have an indolent, non-aggressive cancer, they want it out. 90% of men elect to have a treatment after they get diagnosed with cancer. So they end up undergoing a radical prostatectomy, which is almost guaranteed to leave them incontinent and impotent or both. And right. you know what? You know what, Keith? Uh, Scott, I don't know about you guys, but if the surgery is going to leave me incontinent and impotent for the last 25 years of my life, I, I'm not that happy. Well, that's you know, the point I, of the I, I mean, I'm not sufficiently happy with being alive that I'm going to do it like that. You know, and, and that's that's the whole point is so many men regret the screening and the treatment, because when you when they, they, they would they, what the problem is that most of those men that were treated and ended up incontinent and impotent, they call them limp and leaking. Those men would have never needed treatment in their lifetime, but they did it because the cancer diagnosis scared them into treatment. Right. This is, uh, you know, this is a, one of the most important things that we are talking about here today. Uh, I want you guys to, to think very carefully about what we're saying here. Uh, PSA screening, uh, in, in other words, having the test done statistically does not make you live longer. And it's, there's, there's, I wouldn't have it done. And I think that as, uh, as time goes on, more and more doctors are, are, uh, discounting the, uh, the necessity of, uh, of constant PSA screen. What are they, they were doing it twice a year previously. The 2018, the, the, the American Urology Association changed their kind of stance on it. They don't recommend it less than 40. They don't recommend it in 40 to 54 unless you're at increased risk. Certain races or family history of adenocarcinomas. Right. From 55 to 69, it's a shared decision-making, and they don't recommend it over 70. Right. Well, that's, that's, that's an improvement because 10 mm -hmm. years that ago, that's not what they were doing, is it? And, and you are correct. And the ones that do get tested in the 40 to 54, they kind of advise that you might want to consider it every two years instead of every year. That's correct. Right. To once again, reduce the chances of a false positive yes. leading to a biopsy, leading to the right. overdiagnosis and overtreatment. There is That's no correct. better way to reduce the chance of a false positive than to not have the test. Right? I think it is practical. So, uh, 
Well, aside from aside from this, is there any way to construe that the administration of replacement testosterone could stimulate the growth of prostate cancer? Is there any possible way that there is a mechanism by which that could happen? Well, well a, we've already done the studies. It does it. Well, here's the interesting right. thing. Because of the saturation model. Right. It just does it. It just does it. So when the doctor tells you that he's not going to give you any testosterone because it'll give you prostate cancer, don't pay him. Don't pay him. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Don't well, that's how write Tyler him a check. Out. Don't that's how reward incompetence out. with money. Well, I mean, that was how it was figured out. you got to remember, there are millions of men on testosterone replacement therapy, and we know about one in seven men are going to develop prostate cancer. And all these millions of men that are on testosterone that didn't know they had prostate cancer, but they're not seeing this increase in aggressive forms of prostate cancer or these grapefruit-sized prostate tumors, they didn't see that, and that's how I put it all together. And even the treatments for prostate cancer, if you consider bipolar androgen therapy, um, they actually give high-dose testosterone to treat prostate cancer. There's several pilot trials that's already went out. And so, and those individuals, castration-resistant prostate cancer, there's a malfunction of the androgen receptor. It doesn't upregulate like it does in normal tissue. It's reversed in low-level tissue or low-level androgen environments. It actually upregulates instead of higher androgen environments. Right. And that's another sad story there, Mark, is these men that undergo androgen deprivation therapy these men oh, want to die i mean it literally yes. you just you just destroy man's manhood altogether well, this and you is, kill him you, don't, you know and that's why i made that him, previous statement guys the treatment does it, it, it's precisely why i made that previous statement and i think that the vast majority of people if you if you can give them enough testosterone to where they're not scared of everything anymore uh would tell you that no, I you know I kind of like using my TT for something other than TT, you know, I, I like sex, you know, I like not leaking all over myself, you know, I like to come, you know, I like a, a sex drive. I enjoy that aspect of my physical existence, and uh, if you tell him, well, you know. The good part is, is you're not going to have prostate cancer anymore because we're going to take your prostate out. The bad part is you're going to leak all over your cell. You have to have depends on for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. You'll never have another hard on and you don't get to come. That's right? a true story. That's and a, that is, that, that is, those are your choices. Listen to that because that is true. Those that are true. your choices. It is in fact, that's stark. So, you know, I think that lots and lots of guys would decide differently. Uh, it, let me say, let me say that again. I don't want this to escape. Uh, notice if you give a guy enough testosterone to where his normal, uh, uh, aggressive brain is working he's able to make those kinds of decisions much more accurately than if you uh leave him down in two digit testosterone numbers and then scare him to death with the c word right well it's well it's about quality of life right yeah. not quantity but quality yeah, yeah it quality. is 
Uh, you know, and this brings up another interesting topic. We had started the the, the discussion today off with uh, the depression aspects of of testosterone therapy. Uh, I'm just through some personal experience and watching, you know, other men over my over my life. What? And I've, I've asked psychiatrists this, and they just don't seem to want to plug in with me here. What is the opposite of depression? Is it uh, euphoria? Or is it aggression? How do you feel when you're depressed, guys? You don't. It's it's been a while since you've been that way. Since you're on testosterone. Well, you don't you, want to feel. You don't want to do anything. You just you, want to sleep. You sit there with nothing. your hands you no in your in lap anything. and look right. down, don't you? Right. right. It's like learned ho- hopelessness. Yeah. Yeah. You don't want to do anything. Yes. It's hopelessness. Right. Now. And and we we'd already observed that one of the most profound and immediate effects of testosterone replacement therapy is psychological. And I submit to you that aggression is the opposite of depression. And that, and, and by aggression, I don't mean getting in a fight. Everybody understands that I don't mean getting in a fight, right? I mean that forward motion. Like being right. male. How right. about being what we man. said earlier? Mo- motivation, right? Initiative, In- energy, exactly. Self confidence, exactly. self confidence. All those will will and, fit into your definition. And the absence of that is depression, and Correct. the presence of testosterone increases all of those things. And I don't, you know, I, I appreciate you guys being here with us today because this is such an important thing to talk about with guys that are over the age of forty-five. We all are going to be looking at, at, unless we get killed in a car wreck, we're all going to be looking at being older men. And there are good ways to be an older man, and there are bad ways to be an older man. And I think that you need to consider, if you're an older man, I think you need to consider testosterone replacement therapy. Uh, You can get a hold of these guys, Keith Nichols, and uh, Scott Howell at uh, their clinic in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And you you want to? How would you rather be contacted? Email or telephone or what do you? They can call. They can call or email. It's uh, the telephone is four two three four one seven seventeen hundred, and it's Tier One Health and Wellness. Or you can email us at tier one hw.com. Tier one hw.com. Write that yeah, down. Tier the number one. Mm-hmm. Right. HW.com. Numeral one. T- That's right. Tier numeral one. HW.com. HW.com. Uh, guys, I sure do appreciate this. Uh, I, I think <laughs> what you're pleasure. gonna what you're gonna find is that a lot of other people appreciate it too. And uh, this is information that that we need. Uh, and you and I will talk again about this. Uh, I'd like to follow up with you on some stuff. And uh, 
these things get to where they're too long and they exceed everybody's ability to attention span. <laughs> yep, thing. So, but uh, we'll talk again about this because this is this is such an important uh, aspect of of men's physical existence, and it uh, it goes hand in hand with with strength training, and it's uh, a very important topic. And I do appreciate your time. Thank you guys for being with us on Starting Strength Radio. You're very welcome. Pleasure to well be here. Yeah, thank you. Very much. And we'll see you guys next time. Starting Strength Radio.